Howdy, welcome back to another episode of our weekly podcast. We know you've got a buffet of media to choose from each week. That's why we put a lot of effort into finding stories from the Bible that have relevant lessons for us today. I hope you enjoy. Thanks again for having me. Um, So uh, earlier this morning, we talked about sorcery in the Old Testament, and now we're going to look at it in the New Testament, and this will kind of lead us more up to today. But I just want to, I want to show you some of these things. So just to get started, uh, let's go ahead and look into Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Because, you know, when we think of sorcery, we think rightly so, spiritualism, we think of um, speaking to the dead, we think of seances, we think of magic, we think of all those things, as we should. But we don't often think about healing. We don't, we don't think about medicine. And in the ancient world, those things were never separated. They were never, ever separated. Healing, idolatry, magic, medicine, they were all connected as one. So in Acts chapter 19, we have Paul doing miracles through the Holy Spirit. And starting in verse 11... He, he, uh, he goes to Ephesus, and of course we know that Ephesus is a Greek city with many Jews. And he's going in there, and of course it starts off with people not even knowing about the Holy Spirit, and he anoints them with the Holy Spirit. And now in verse 11, it says, As now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out from, from them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord over those who had evil spirits, saying, we abjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Now, this is, this is powerful because exorcism was not uniquely uh, a Jewish or Christian thing. There were other religions that believed in exorcisms. They believed in that. They believed that people would have spirits about them, evil spirits, and sometimes they would use uh, poisonous herbs, they would use alcohol, they would use all kinds of things. As a matter of fact, the, the, the word we get, Bacchus or Bacchanalian, uh, the, the Greek god, his name was Dionysus, and, and people believed that by drinking alcohol you would imbibe the spirit of the god, the Greek god, Bacchus. And so there were all kinds of ideas about these type of spirits, this type of mindset. And so when Paul does this, these guys want to impersonate him. And of course, they find out quickly that they are not the real McCoy. And then we go on to this next verse, and this is where it starts to connect. Uh, Verse 17, this became known to both all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and and fear fell on all of them. And And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them all in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Now, I want you to notice this, that the way that Luke puts us together is that the beginning starts off with Paul doing these miracles and healing people, whether he takes his apron or a handkerchief or something that he touched and they were healing people. I want you to understand this, that when Jews and Christians saw 
that there was real power coming from the apostle. When they saw that the Holy Spirit could heal people, what did they do? They abandoned their magic books and burned them all together. These were the books of sorcery. These were the books of witchcraft. And let me be very clear, they had remedies in them. They had ways of treating people. And when they saw the power of the Holy Spirit working through Paul, they said, we don't want any of that. We want this distinctive method of healing that depends on the power of God that can cure anything. That's what they wanted to do. That's what they saw. The people were persuaded to give all of that up just because of what they were able to do. And so this is powerful when you begin to see it. Now, I, I, want, you to, I, I want you to understand this because there's going to be a reaction to this. There's going to be a reaction to us that is always predictable. When the power of God shows up to overthrow the enemy, there's always gonna be a reaction. But before we get into that, let us go ahead and pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, I thank you for your holy scriptures. There's so many things in there. Help us, Lord, to use them to be the detector between true and falsehood, between light and darkness, between the method of healing that you endorse and the method of healing of the world. Help us to see these things as a direct contrast to the word of God. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. So we're staying, we're staying in this chapter, and let's see. So what happens next? The people are doing what? They're throwing out all of their, their magic books. They're, they're, they're abandoning the, the idols. They're abandoning the worship. And notice what happens. Chapter, chapter 19, verse 21. He starts off, and this is what he says. Uh, actually, we'll go to verse 23. We'll skip down to verse 23. Chapter 19, verse 23. Notice what he says. And about that time, there was a great commotion about the way. For certain men named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of the similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only, by, not only at Ephesus, but all throughout Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned many, away, turned many people away, saying, They are not gods which are made with hands." So not only this trade of ours is in danger of falling in disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Verse 28. Then they heard this and they were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And of course we find in verse 29, they riot and they're upset. But why are they doing this? Well, was it just merely that they had given up idols? I mean, yes, we know that the Jews, I mean, think about it, the Jews had been in Ephesus for a long time. Paul wasn't teaching anything new saying don't worship idols, right? That's not new, but what was different? Paul had shown that there was a better way of healing. Paul had shown that you could trust God and that these idols actually had no power. The sorcery, the witchcraft, the secret knowledge, the medicine that was tied to all these idols was nothing and that you could depend on the Lord for all these things, and you could be healed. And this, notice what they're saying, that people are no longer believing this, that they're not going to believe in our statues, they're not going to believe in our idols, they're not going to believe in our witchcraft, they're not going to believe in our education anymore. The whole system is going to fall, and we have to do something. And so they're writing, they're upset, they cannot, they do not want him to speak anymore, they want to silence him, because his method of healing is undermining their practice. This is the way it always is. If there's a method that is cheap, effective, and causes people to change their lives, 
that is generally attacked, hated, and suppressed. And this is the way we see it exactly here in Acts 19. Why is it that when the Jews for many years living in Ephesus said, those idols aren't gods, they did nothing. And when Paul shows up and says, those idols aren't God, it did something. It's because Paul was able to demonstrate it with the power of the Holy Spirit. You no longer had to depend on the temple of Diana for fertility. You no longer had to depend on these other temples for, for health and healing and happiness or for, or for when you were upset and bothered or worried. You didn't have to depend on that. You could go directly to the Father and you could find help in a time of need. But here's the interesting thing is that there, there's a quote and, I, and I, this quote will, will make more sense as we, as we go through a little bit about Greek history here and idols. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke, who is a science fiction writer and theorist, and he was responsible for the idea of the geostationary effect of satellites in order for people to get, uh, like we use GPS and things like that today. And so he was very popular, uh, definitely an atheist and all these things, but he says this, and, and people, people have got upset at this quote because they don't like our science and technology to be referred to magic. But notice what he says here, and I think this is very appropriate when we look at ancient history, and I think it's appropriate when we look at uh, technology and medicine today. He says, any sufficient advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I want you to think about that for a moment, because there are things that exist in technology that if we knew about it would blow our mind. We'd say, well, there's no way that, that's possible. But it does. And I, and I, want you to I want to demonstrate this. So how many of you have heard of Heron of Alexandria? Heron of Alexandria, okay. So you're gonna wanna know about this guy. There's a, there's a documentary on YouTube called Ancient Inventions, and they talk about, they're gonna mention him, and they're gonna mention about uh, a temple technology. And so you're gonna wanna watch it. I'm not, even, I'm not gonna give it all away, but some of the things I'm gonna mention in here. Heron of Alexandria was an incredible inventor. And he was solicited by the temple builders, and he was solicited by the people who ran the temples. And they said, hey, we have a problem. The problem is these people from Galilee are teaching things that are leading people not to come to the temple. We got to do something. So this is what they did. Uh, Alex, so by the way, the, the surviving works of Heron, which many were burned, we have one surviving work which was translated into Latin. It's called Pneumatica, which deals with, uh, which deals with air uh, pressure and deals with how to build machines. Heron was a master engineer. And so he... he set up a bunch of idols and created machines that would bewilder the mind. You have to remember that nobody had ever seen machines like this before. So he created a giant statue and one, one statue, and it was, it was run by a series of gears and pulleys, but the statue would take a, a blade and slice the neck of a horse, of a, of a statue horse. And then it would rotate and pull it back. And the priest would say, see, the gods are alive through these idols. And he would walk up to it and he would put a bowl of water and the horse would drink the entire bowl. And he would show the whole people the bowl. And people would be like, well, truly the, these things really are God. These statues are gods. But what Heron had done is he designed that when he put the blade in there, it set up a lever of gears and opened up pipes, creating negative pressure. So when he put the bowl of water there, the horse mechanically drank it. But people had never saw that before. They were amazed. They also found that they, they created a giant statue of Diana. And if you look in the Greek statue, it's Diana with all these different breasts, which are designed to say that she's the one that provides like a mother. 
And at a certain time, they would create a fire. You would go make a sacrifice. And when you'd make a sacrifice and the fire would get hot enough, it would push air that would get hot through a series of tubes. And these air would go hot enough through a series of tubes that would push a bladder, and the bladder would force milk out of the spouts of the idol. And everyone would say, look, she's alive. She's blessing us. Another one that he helped build and this, is, this was written by a number of ancients that they witnessed, is they would go into the temple of Apollo, and during a certain time of the day, the, the chariot of Apollo, which was gold, would be on one side of the temple, and on the other side, it would go to uh, the, the sun. It would become the sun in the other side. And so at a certain time, the chariot would seemingly levitate across the top of the temple to the other side. It turns out that they, they had they've been studying this, that they were so good at using magnets that they could create magnets to help pull the chariot seemingly across the sky. Now, think about that. If you were there and you didn't know about this and you saw a giant gold chariot going from one side of the room to the other, you'd say, oh my goodness, and you've been told your whole life these are real gods, there's evidence. There's evidence they were doing this to convince people that what they were seeing by Paul, what they were seeing by the apostles of Jesus was no different than the magic they could do. But they were using technology. They even had another thing that they would do. They had, a, they had two statues, and on a certain time of the year, they had magnets in them. And these statues was uh, on one side Mars, the god of war, Venus, the goddess of fertility. And they would come together and embrace. And people said, see, the gods are alive. And they would use certain magic, uh, sorry, magnets to pull them together. People didn't know that that's what was happening. They even had another thing that when you would go to them, the priests had developed certain uh, water. They had developed water that when you put a tincture of bark in it, the water still appeared clear. But when you drank the, the water that had the tincture of bark in it, you drank enough of it, the next day you would pee red. You would urinate red. And so what would happen is you would tell the priest, you'd say, I, I, I was peeing red, there must be a problem. And the priest would tell you, well, you need to drink this water. But this water doesn't have the tincture of bark in it. And suddenly you're cured. You see, they had a way of trying to use technology and magic. And listen, if you were to look at Heron's book, it is master engineering. But it was all designed to get people to believe in the gods. It was designed to take and, and mimic the miracles that the apostles of Jesus were doing. It was designed to get people to depend on them. It was designed to say, you need us, the scientific elite. You need our expertise. You need to trust us. You can't trust in the simple methods of the teachers from Galilee. You, the, the waving of an apron, we know that doesn't work. The waving of a handkerchief, we know that doesn't work. Prayer, that doesn't work. Look at our temples. Look at our learning. Look at our engineering. Look at what we can do. That's what they did. And you can think about it. That was a compelling argument to them. Look at what they had built. These were the scientists, the engineers, the, the astronomers. These were the great people of the day. But they couldn't believe them. They couldn't believe them. And I, I love this. I love this passage right here. It's uh, from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And it says, and this, this gets to the point about learning to trust in God. It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and a rewarder of those who diligently Seek him. You see, the world always has a way of wowing us with technology and all these things to get us to be convinced that the methods that God would use are too simple and they cannot work or that they're some form of magic. But in truth, it's the world that is using magic and deception to get us 
to fall and worship them. And so when we look at this passage, we see that God is saying, if we come to him, we must believe that he is God and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, I want you to see something here. We're, we're talking about this and I, and I want you to see how Greek medicine was because I mentioned about their temples. I mentioned about what they did. And, and so here's, here's a little bit about Greek medicine, which we, we don't know or maybe we know, uh, but we have forgotten. So when I mentioned this morning, I talked about the source uh, in uh, Revelation 18, and I used that text about uh, sorcery, you know, talking about Babylon and sorcery. And many people are quick to point out that word is pharmakeia. And pharmakeia is similar where we get the root word of pharmacy, and, and, and we just run there. We're just like, well, that's it, right? But that's not it. That's not the whole story. And if you just go there, you're missing more of it. There's way more than just that. And I also think that you have to understand that sorcery is much more in depth. So, the Greek form of healing, the word pharmakeia, which comes from the root word pharmakoi. The pharmakoi uh, comes from, is, is uh, <laughs> this is crazy. Pharmakoi was, was a group of people who were considered the undesirables of every town and village, whether they were ugly, whether they were criminals, but they were considered the undesirable, maybe poor. And so what they did is that every year they're during a festival, they would take the people who were called the pharmacoi and they would drag them out of the city. Sometimes they would beat them. Sometimes they would burn them. Sometimes they would execute them and push them off a cliff. But the idea was this, is that if you got rid of the undesirables from society during a festival, mind you, that you made the city better. Think about it, that if you could sacrifice the few, you could save the many. And this was the idea of pharmacoi. This was the idea that, if, that these people by being pushed out of society, by being relegated to death or being beaten or being thrown out or, ex or, or, or exiled, that you could bring healing to everyone else. This is how it starts. Now, again, the word pharmacon, the word pharmacon, which is, gets come from this idea of pharmacoi, again, this idea that you take the few and you sacrifice them to help the many, this is the idea of healing. Pharmacon, not only just means dealing with drugs, but it was, it, it was also with amulets, uh, charms, spells, uh, poisons. Uh, they even had healing drinks. They used minerals like lead, mercury, uh, copper, uh, and, uh, and, e and even uh, silver. They would use things like that. The actual word from, that we get from pharmacon it is also linked to the word toxin. The word toxin comes from the Greek word uh, toxicon, and uh, toxos, toxos, if you divide it up, toxos means bow, and con is usually poison. And what, what, the reason why they got that, the reason why we use that word, is that the Greeks and other armies, they used to take their arrows and they would dip them in poison and shoot them. And there was the idea that if you got hit with it, you would be poisoned. That's where we get the word uh, toxin from, from that word alone. Pharmacon was always about using things that could be poisonous to help people get well. It was about separating the few that were uh, poisoning society and purging them, separating them to make society better and cleaner, to purify them. The word antidote comes from the word uh, anti, which means in place of, and didontai, which means give. And it's actually the, the antonym to pharmacon. It's the idea that you give something healthy instead of pharmacon, which is generally poison. The, 
the herbs, and again, they did use herbs, there's no question about it, but the, the Greeks tended to prefer uh, certain herbs that were actually quite powerful. So they used herbs that were euphoric, they used some that were uh, poisonous, they used some that were completely hallucinatory, uh, that would cause you to hallucinate. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that they liked to do is they, they used black hellebore. Black hellebore is a, is a flower that grows in the Mediterranean, and it is absolutely toxic. And what they would do is that they would let goats feed upon it, and they would milk the goats, and they would use the toxin derived from the goat's milk, and they would give it to people who were considered mad, depressed. They call it melancholia, uh, who, who may have had epilepsy, uh, which they would call uh, 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 which would be properly translated lunacy or, or being a lunatic. That's what they would use. They understood that there were good herbs. They understood there were things they could do, but the word pharmacon and the word pharmacoi all come from this idea of one doing evil so that good may come. Pushing people out, sacrificing them, killing them. They save society because they are sacrificed in order so society survives. And then pharmacon comes from this idea of using minerals and poisons and herbs that would actually be poisonous to your body in order to make you well. That was the idea behind it. And so when you look at that, you say, wow, that's, that's kind of crazy. That, 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 uh, that, that doesn't sound like the type of medicine that God's people would actually use. It's interesting that in the, in the, uh, in the um, Hi- Hippocratic Oath, the, the very beginning of the Hippocratic Oath says this. He says, I swear by Apollo the healer and Asclepius, by Hygieia, by Panacea, and by the gods and goddesses making them my witness that I will carry out according to my ability and judgment this oath and this indenture. Notice the very first thing they do. And listen, to be clear, the Hippocratic Oath, I believe, was a reformatory practice in medicine. They were trying to make medicine better. But I want you to see something here. The Greek medicine was based on their belief in the gods. It was based right there on Apollo. It was based right there that you could sacrifice the few for the many. It was based on the idea that we could figure out a way to use poison to make people better. This was the idea. And so you can see in certain places in this, in this oath where they're trying to mitigate this. For example, he says this. He says, I will use treatment to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but never with a view of injuring or wrongdoing. Neither will I administer a poison, that word right there, poison, is pharmacon, to anybody when asked to do so, nor will I suggest such a course. Why would they say that? They're saying that because people were administering poison. They're saying that because that was the standard practice, and they're trying to reform medicine. Similarly, I will not give a woman an application to cause abortion. They actually had herbs and things that they could give to cause women to have abortions. We know about herbs today, which are called abortifacients, which can actually cause the discharge of a baby. He says, I will, I will, keep, I will keep pure and holy my life and my part. I will not use a knife, even verily on the sufferers from the stone. That's kidney stones. In other words, if you weren't trained in surgery, don't do surgery. And I, but I will give place to such as craftsmen that are therein. This is interesting that this whole idea, they're trying to get back to saying, hey, we shouldn't give poisons that are going to make people sick. We shouldn't, we shouldn't cause abortion if, if, if it would be wrong to do that. They're trying to reform medicine, but yet this is still all tied to the gods. One of the other things that's interesting about this is that they, in his oath, in the Hippocratic Oath, it also says that they are to teach anyone who wants to learn about medicine and they're there to instruct them. However, it says this, it says that uh, 
they will teach only those who want to be physicians, but then it says at the very end, but to no one else. In other words, you were to keep that craft to yourself. Only those who wanted to study medicine, only those who were the sons and daughters of doctors, but to no one else. You look at this and you say, well, that's odd. That's odd. Like, how does this harmonize with what God has said? How does this harmonize? And keep in mind that this system of medicine existed at the time of the apostles. This existed at the time of the disciples. And you could see they would be drawing people away to follow this. And so let's look at what the Bible actually says here. Let's look at what it says. Let's go to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verse 25. Mark 5, verse 25. All right. And so it says this in the Mark 25, 25 through and 26. It says, now a certain woman had an issue of blood for 12 years, and she suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. What's, what's, what's interesting about this is that the word suffered, it can also be translated endure. It's the idea that she went through an entire ordeal. She was suffering, she was suffering from this issue of blood, and if you understand the Hebrew teachings that if a woman was had an issue of blood that meant she essentially couldn't participate in society. Everything she touched was unclean. She couldn't go here, she couldn't go there. If she had a husband, he couldn't touch her. There would be nothing that she could do. And what's fascinating about this is that she most likely, even though, I, and I believe she was probably a wealthy Jewish woman, she probably went first to the Greek physicians. Think about it, she had such a terrible disease that over 12 years, or even if it was just a whole year, she was like, there's no way that the simple things that we're told about in the Bible, could it possibly work? So I need to see the best. I need to see the brightest. I need to go to the big temples of healing. I need to go where they're on the cutting edge of medicine, and I need to get that. And she probably did. This is probably why she spent all of her money on all of those things. And what happens? The Bible said that she didn't get better, but she grew worse. Instead of doing maybe what was simple, instead of all of this, she grew worse. And finally, Finally, after she was lost all of her money, after she was desperate, after 12 years, what does she do? She seeks out Jesus. She seeks out Jesus and goes to follow him. And then she says, if I only touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. It's fascinating that someone with money could have done all of that, spent all of that, and took all the poisons that they had made all the things that they could have prescribed and nothing made her better except for the healing touch of Jesus. This was a lesson. This was a lesson not just to her but also to us that we should seek first the great physician. There's nothing wrong with seeing a physician for different things. There's nothing wrong with that. But if we don't put the great physician first, we're wasting our time. We need to depend on him. It's also interesting to notice this, that the Jews, uh, the Jews did have a simple method of healing. As a matter of fact, when we read in the book, it's not in your Bible, but it's in the, it's in the Apocrypha, in the Ecclesiasticus. 
In Ecclesiasticus, it talks about the Jewish physicians, and it says that they learned how to use different herbs and compound them. And they believed that sin was the root cause of disease. And they believed that you could learn how to do all this, but you also had to make propitiation for sin. A group of Jews called the Essenes believed in ritual bathing. They believed in ritual bathing so much that they would take cold water baths in the morning and cold water baths in the evening, and they would keep themselves ritually clean, so much so that even the Greeks would go to them and ask them how they could be healed because they had, were a model of health. The Jews had ideas about healing, but it wasn't complex. It didn't have, it didn't have all the, the, the deep words. It didn't have the, the trappings of the great temples of, of the entire world. It didn't have the, the, the uh, endorsement of the great philosophers and the wise men. It was so simple that people couldn't believe that something this simple would work. And I believe this woman here was unwilling to try all of that and instead went to the physicians of the world where she spent all of her money only to come back to the great physician of Jesus Christ and to be made whole. And this is the idea with that. Let's look at another story here in the New Testament. Let's look at John chapter nine, verses one through 12. John chapter nine, verses one through 12. And it says, now as Jesus paused, passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither. This man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Nothing is coming, sorry, the night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva and anointed the eyes of the blind with the clay. And he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and he came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors of those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is this not he who sat and begged? And the some said, this is, this is he. Others said, he is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore, they said to him, how were your eyes opened? And he answered, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Now we know that we know the rest of the story here. It gets, it gets even more interesting. Did the Jews, did the scribes and Pharisees, the, the Jewish leadership, did they believe that the clay and the water made this man see? No, they did not. Because what was the issue? If they confessed Jesus, what was gonna happen? They were to be thrown out of the synagogue. They knew that this was from the power of God and notice what they did. Notice what they did. They, they, they went, after they found out that Jesus could heal a man who was born blind, the scribes and Pharisees went to every single synagogue sending a message saying, guess what? There's a healer among us that is healing the blind. Send everyone you can. This is the greatest thing ever. We need, we need to let the whole world know that blindness doesn't need to exist because we have a prophet in our midst who will save everyone from that. No, that's not what they did, did they? They suppressed it. They said, well, if you mention, if you mention this Jesus, we're throwing you out of the synagogue. If you say that he did this and we know he didn't, you say, well, yes, he did. No, he didn't. They would throw you out. And so even his parents were afraid 
And then what happens when the young man stands up for Jesus? They throw him out too. Some people ask, well, if, 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 if the natural remedies would work so well, if these things were so effective, if hydrotherapy worked so well, wouldn't we be doing it today? Well, no, because it doesn't give glory to the God of this world. If it gives glory to the God of this world, it will get the endorsement of everyone. But if it gives glory to our maker, if it gives glory to our redeemer, you get thrown out of the synagogue. It's the same. And now notice Jesus could have, as he did to the Roman centurion servant, spoken merely a word, right? But he chose to use clay, he chose to use spit, and he chose, and he chose to use water. Now, I, I understand that Part of it was that it was on the Sabbath and that he was showing that the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath, that he could spit, mix, and that was considered not, you shouldn't do that on the Sabbath and then putting that on the man's eyes and doing a miracle on the Sabbath, all that was considered wrong because you weren't to violate the Sabbath according to the Jews. Not according to God, not according to the Bible, but according to the Jews. So yes, I know that, right? But he still used clay, he still used spit, and he still used water. And while everyone in this story knows that that was not the healing power, they knew that it pointed back to Jesus, he still chose to use it. And why? He wanted to show that even with these means, natural means, this is how we're supposed to heal. He could have said, he could have said to the young man, he could have said, hey, go down there, down the road, there's a guy, he's not of our faith, he's a Greek, he worships a statue, but he's gonna give you a, a treatment of lead and, and uh, mercury and, and some herbs and he's gonna smear it on your eyes, go wash that and you'll be healed. He didn't do that. He continued to point to simple means just as we read in the Old Testament. Pouring salt into a spring that is poisonous doesn't make it unpoisonous. You could do that all day. Throwing a stick into a spring that is poisonous doesn't make it unpoisonous, right? These things don't happen, but it showed over and over again that God wants his people to put their trust in him and also participate using natural means. That's what he wants. This is what he did. He could have done a number of other things. He could have sent him say, hey, look, I can't handle this. Go to the surgeon, but he didn't. That's not how Jesus works. Let's go to John chapter five. John chapter five. John chapter five, verses one through 15. And it says this, and after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in the Hebrew Bethsaida, having five porches. And in these lay a great multitude of sick, people blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down, for an angel went down at a certain time of the pool and stirred up the water. And then whoever stepped in it first, after the stirring of the water was made, was made well of a certain disease he had. And now, and now, so we're going to stop right there. Here's the thing. Did an angel, was an angel actually doing this? Was it, was it was an angel of God actually stirring the water and the only way you're going to get well is if you could hurry and toss someone in the pool? No, that's not how God works. This whole thing here was mysticism. And, and so <laughs> I'm very sensitive to this because I work in the alternative medicine field where there's a lot of mysticism God does not heal by mysticism. He's not gonna heal by this. He's not gonna heal by a hocus pocus. He's not gonna heal by a gimmick. This is a point. This was not happening, but the people were so desperate, they were willing to cling on anything. And when Jesus talks to the man who had been there for 38 years, what does he say? He sees him lying there, and he says to them, verse six, he says, do you want to be made well? And what does the man say? 
Verse seven, he says, I, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. They're all waiting for, to get put in this pool. It is complete and total mysticism. And this man, for 38 years, we don't know how long he was at the pool of Bethsaida, they believed it so strongly that they're just waiting if someone can just lift me up and put me in the pool. That is not how God works. That's not how God works. God is not about hocus pocus and woo-woo medicine. That's not it either. And so what does he do? Jesus, what does he do? Full of faith, he says, Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well and he took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. Of course, that's very important because we know the Jews become quite angry. And the Jews said therefore to him, sorry, the Jews therefore said to him, who was cured, it is a Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered and said, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they said to him, who is the man who said this to you, take up your bed and walk? But no one knew, but, but the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and, and said to him, see that you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, I want you to, there's a lot here, and, there's, and I want you to understand something. Never in the Bible is sin ever separated from healing. Even in the story of the man who was born blind, the, the disciples understood that sin, that disease was the result of sin. Every infectious disease, every infectious disease, every disease that we face is the result of sin. Why wouldn't we go to the great physician, the only one who can heal us from sin, first? Every, even death itself. I say this to people when we have funerals. I said, if a funeral is painful, if death is painful and we sorrow as we should and we mourn, there's a reason for it because it's not natural. We weren't designed to die. We were designed to live forever in the garden that God designed for us. We were designed to eat from the tree of life and live with Christ forever. This is what we were designed to do. And so when death happens and disease happens, it is the result of being separated from God. It is the result of sin. All disease and all disease comes from this root. We can say, well, it's, it's caused because I didn't get enough sleep. It's caused from this micro. Yes, maybe that's true, but the root is sin, and this is why we must always go to the great physician. But I want you to think about this. Why 38 years for this man? 38 years being semi-paralyzed or a quadriplegic, we don't know. We don't know. We just know he can't walk. Maybe he could use his hands. Maybe he couldn't. His, his body was completely emaciated. He had no muscle probably left. He was probably just a pile of bones and skin and working organs. He probably could barely feed himself. Someone had to clothe him. Someone had to wipe him. For 38 years, he lived in that condition. That had to be the most horrible condition ever. I've talked to doctors, and I remember talking to this guy. He was in, a, he was in an accident, and he thought that he had fractured his neck. And he told one of his friends who was a physician, he says, look, if, this, if, if C5 is fractured and I can never walk again, he says, just go ahead and pump me up with morphine and just let me die. I don't want to live. Because it, the idea of being paralyzed for the rest of your life was worse than death. That's how some people feel about it. So this man suffers for 38 years and Jesus shows up and heals him. And then what does Jesus say to this man? What does he say to him after he has healed him? He says, see that you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. 
Did you ever think that maybe God in his wisdom allowed this man to sit there for 38 years and think about how he got in that position? To think about what sin had done to him that it robbed him of every enjoyment of life. It made his life brutal and miserable and, and embarrassing. He allowed this man to sit there for 38 years until Jesus would appear and heal him. Maybe this man wasn't able to hear the message that Jesus was going to say 35 years or 34 years or 20 years. He had to acknowledge that sin had brought him to this position. And notice he says, and it's not just sin in the general sense of like Adam and Eve. It is his own sin. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. This is something that is missing in medicine. We don't like to talk about sin and things that happen to us. We don't like to. To, to suggest that people living a certain way develop certain diseases, which we know in medicine. As a matter of fact, when you take a history, you will ask people, where did you travel? And depending on where they travel, you say, well, what did you do while you were there? Who were you with? I mean, there's a, there's a whole thing of, of writer's disease where we talk about, we have to know about the history. So you look at this and you say, why is it that we have disassociated sin from disease? Because we don't want people to put one next to the other and recognize that we are responsible largely what happens to this temple. And yet Jesus hammers that idea home telling this man that yes, you've been made well, but go and sin no more lest something worse can happen to you. You know, I, I remember uh, reading about this. There was a man who, who uh, he used, he's dead now. He used to go around to all these high schools and talk about, talk about not using drugs, like not using illegal drugs. And he would tell his story. And he would, he would tell him the story. He was sitting at home. He had, his wife had left for work, and he was, he was getting high. And he was so high, he was just sitting there in the chair, and his son was eating food. And he was just there, kind of like this. And he said his son started to choke. And he, because he was so out of it, his hands were not working very well, and he was trying to call, trying to, to, to do something to his son to get him from choking. And he said he watched his son choke to death before his eyes. And he said it was that moment then that he realized that his sin caused his son to die and that he would never, ever touch another drug again. We don't get it. A lot of times when we suffer sickness and pain, God is trying to remind us, I've told you there's a better way. I've told you there's a better way. And we disassociate sin from sickness. We do Christ a great disservice because we wanna point back to him to help people to overcome Back to him for people to get well. Let me go to another passage here. Again, I'm just showing you the difference between Greek medicine and God's medicine. There was no concept of sin in Greek medicine. There was no understanding that you had done wrong and this is what you brought upon yourself. There was no understanding of that. And I get it, it's painful. It's painful. Uh, my brother, my brother's an orthopedic surgeon. He told me the story. He said that he had, he, uh, there was a, there was a, um, there was a patient who had developed osteomyelitis. And so osteomyelitis is an infection deep inside the bone, and it's very rare to get it. You can get it from IV drug use. You can get it from previous surgery where it wasn't completely septic. And you can also get it if you have uncontrolled diabetes uh, because you just, the immune system can't get there. You've shot it. And this man had uncontrolled diabetes, so they went into his arm. They, they cleaned out the osteomyelitis, the, 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 the pus and everything. They cleaned it all out of his shoulder, put him back together. 
And so my brother goes into the guy's room post-op, and he goes in there, and he, he's going to talk to the guy to see how he's doing, and he walks in, and the guy's eating a cheeseburger and drinking a milkshake. And my brother looks at him, and he's like, he's like, what, what are you doing? And the guy's like, I'm eating. And he's like, don't you realize that this is, you not controlling your diabetes is what led to this. And he's like, I don't care. I want to be happy. And my, and my brother goes, he goes, look, the next time you see me, I'm going, I'm going, to, take, I'm going to take your foot because you're going you're gonna to get gangrene and you're going to get diabetic neuropathy. I'm going to take your foot. And then if you keep eating this way, I might have to amputate just above the knee on the thigh and take away the rest of your leg and maybe your other foot. And the guy said, I don't care. I want to be happy. This is what we've done. See, the problem that we have with Greek medicine and sometimes even modern medicine, if we use it as an ejector seat, that, hey, I can do whatever I want to my body and I just pull the lever and I'm safe. This was not Hebrew medicine. This is not the medicine that God has. God wants us to take responsibility for our health. He wants us to see that something worse can happen to us if we continue going down our sinful path. He wants to wake us up and say, please, Take control of it. And yes, God can do miracles. He can bring us back from the dead. He can heal us from terrible illnesses. But we have to acknowledge him in all of our ways and put him first. This is the difference. And you can see it here. You can see it in the examples of Jesus. Let's go to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17, and we'll start in verse 15. And so a man comes down to Jesus' disciples, and he wants them to be healed. and says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic who suffers severely. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and he came out of him and the child was cured that very hour. And of course we know that the disciples asked him why couldn't we cast out this demon? And he said, of course, in verse 20, because of your unbelief. Wait wait a second. Their unbelief, they had seen Jesus do miracles. Let, Let me just be very clear. They were doing miracles. It's not that they hadn't done miracles before. They were doing miracles before. We can read this, that they went out doing miracles. They had seen Jesus do miracles. They, they even talk about after they were sent out, they said, even, even the demons fear us. They tremble before us. This is amazing, right? But he said, because of your unbelief. And, and he, says, I sure, he says, I say to you, if you had faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, remove here and it will, and it will move and nothing shall, will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not come does not go out except for by prayer and fasting. But why is it that they didn't have faith? I mean, I'm telling you, you can read in the Bible, they were doing miracles. They were doing miracles. They had seen Jesus do miracles. Why did they not believe? Well, I think the, the, the whole thing is in verse 15. It starts off this. It says, the man comes to the disciples and says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic. The word epileptic is translated in Greek. It's, it's uh, luni. Zetai, which is where we get the word lunatic. It's the idea of being moonstruck. The kid was considered insane. 
that was the diagnosis. We, today, we, we think of epilepsy as where you either have Darvay syndrome, where you have thousands of seizures, uncontrolled, uh, you know, any sort of shaking, that, 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 where there's, where we, we, we know in many respects that there's a misfiring of the brain. We've done all kinds of crazy things where we cut the corpus callosum, sometimes do a hemispherectomy. We give very powerful drugs. It's still a mystery to us, right? But we know that there's certain things that can cause it, where your immune system can be overactive, uh, there can be some uh, birth defects, there can be all kinds of things, there can be head trauma, all this other stuff. It, it's, it's definitely deep. But in those days, epilepsy definitely dealt with the shaking, but it was considered lunacy. It was considered madness. It was considered something that nobody understood. It was insanity. That's what it was. In other words, this young man had a medical diagnosis, and as I pointed out, what did the Greeks do to treat this medical diagnosis? Well, they would take poison, a poison plant, and they would feed it to a goat, and this goat would produce milk based on that poison, and they would give that to people to drink because treating people with poison was the way to get them well. Treating them with this, this expensive poison was the way that you could cure epilepsy, lunacy, madness, insanity. That was the idea that if you could use that, it would get people well. And so when I read this, I realized that the issue was these guys, the disciples, realized they weren't practicing medicine. You see, they thought that maybe this was at first a spiritual issue, but Matthew translates this as epileptic. This is a medical diagnosis. And they probably said, well, wait, we can't help that. That's, that's insanity. That's, that's, that's someone who's a lunatic. That's someone who's been moonstruck. The gods have infected their brain. There's nothing we can do. We're, we're powerless. We can't help them. We've prayed. We've done all that we thought we could. We believe in God. We've, we've seen miracles before, but this is just out of our realm. And that's why Jesus rebukes them and talks about their unbelief. They had believed in this medical diagnosis, which in fact was covering up the true cause of this young boy's sickness. The true cause of this young boy's sickness was what? Not that he, had, he was struck by the rays of the moon and it caused his brain to go insane. Not that he, didn't, he was suffering from a poison deficiency, which is what they would normally give you to treat this. He was suffering from being demon-possessed. Do we sometimes, when we see people who are insane, we would laugh it off if someone said that they were demon-possessed? The answer is yeah. We would. As a matter of fact, I, I was reading uh, in John Wesley's writings. John Wesley's writings, he talks about a number of his friends going to an insane asylum. And they actually go there and they see a woman who was the worst that they had ever saw. She was mad and she was raving and she was crazy. And uh, they went there and they decided that she must have been demon-possessed. And the, the keeper of the insane asylum said, hey, you can pray all you want, but it's not gonna do you any good. This woman's crazy. She's crazy. There's nothing you can do. And they started praying, and the woman started to come to and, and started to talk to them in a way of accusing them of, of, of that they would never have the power to overthrow the demon, and so they continued to pray and pray. This is in John Wesley's writings, okay? Look it up. You can go get his books. You can look at it. You'll read it. It's probably better than what I'm saying. And eventually they keep praying and she comes to her senses. But see, this is, me even saying this sounds crazy because we're convinced that you need poison to treat people who are insane. You need poison to treat people who are insane. If someone is depressed, if someone has anxiety, you need poison 
to treat them if they're insane. And this is, I believe, the struggle that they had right here. They weren't physicians. This was a medical diagnosis. And yet, the power of God could cast out the demon. Now, do, am I saying every cause of insanity is related to demon possession? Nope, certainly not. But what I am saying is, is that sometimes we, through our medical diagnosis, have hidden the true cause of sickness, the true cause of insanity, the true cause of illness. And I firmly believe that there are cases where people have some problems. But I also believe to this day that there are people who would do better if someone laid hands on them and prayed versus gave them poison. It's fascinating as we think about this. We think about, we think about the medicine practiced in the New Testament. I wanted to point out just one other example before we look and transition to another part. But I wanted to also point this out. John the Baptist, he came eating locusts and wild honey. John the Baptist is considered the forerunner of Christ and also the Elijah. He, he gave the Elijah message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what did he do? He lived a simple way, right? He lived out in the wilderness. He was baptizing by the Jordan. Plenty of fresh air, plenty of sunlight. And people say, well, he was eating... Uh, you know, bugs, essentially locusts, which are clean in the Bible, and wild honey. So I, I decided to read about this because I, I know that you can eat locusts. It's definitely something that is in, under, the, under the direction of Leviticus 11. But I thought, eating wild locusts, why? And I've read, I've read what is in the spirit of prophecy on it. She's not specific, so I was reading different commentaries, and one of the things that they point out is they believe that he was eating the carob bean, and they, they, they demonstrate the translation in Hebrew for the carob bean and that, and carob does grow wild all over there. And carob, carob bean was considered a, 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 a food of, um, of repentance. It was considered a food of humility. There's a, there's a rabbi who said that Israel, in order to get Israel, uh, it was basically that Israel will be better off if it is fed carob and water than than. The, the other food that it normally eats. And the idea was that if you eat these simple foods of repentance, it will help your heart. The other, the other, this, the other translation that you will find similar um, is with the, uh, the prodigal son is eating the, he wants to eat the pods which he would feed the, the swine. Well, they would use the carob pods to feed swine. And this is the idea that the carob, the carob plant was considered the food for the poor. It was considered the food of repentance. It was considered a very humble food, and it was very simple. And so this idea that he would fill himself with pods is this idea that he knows he needs to repent and go back to his father. And you look at it, John the Baptist was eating this diet. He was dressing simply. He was living out there, and he was eating the simple diet that reflected a position of repentance. The diet that we were given was a diet of simplicity. It was a diet to reflect of where we wanted to head. It was a diet saying that we were distinct from this world. And you can see that in John the Baptist, there's that same element there. So you, when you look at the New Testament, you see trusting in God, putting him first, using natural means, even believing that God is able to heal even when it is an impossible medical diagnosis, he can still do it, and no reliance on mysticism. No reliance on mysticism. So you can see that in the New Testament, some of the very same things that we saw in the Old Testament continued, as they should. God is the author of both. But how does this stack up? How does this stack up with medicine today? Because we talked about Greek medicine. 
We talked about how they would use poison. We talked about how they, they would keep the craft tightly to themselves and not teach it to the common people. We talked about uh, the idea of pharmacoi and pharmacon, the idea of pharmacoi that is better to sacrifice the few for the many. Pharmacon, it is okay to use poisons and different sort of suspensions in order to get people well. We, we've looked at that, but what about today? Do we still use poison to make people well? Absolutely. In the, in the uh, Polish Archives of Internal Medicine, published in 2014 by Dr. Peter Gache, he, said, he estimated that in the United States alone, over 200,000 people die every year from taking prescription drugs. 100,000 taking the drugs as prescribed, and another 100,000 either taking too much, too little, or taking another drug with it that would cause them to die. He also points out for almost every drug that is out there, there's almost, there's not only drug interactions, but there's also a number of other contraindications, and many of these are often ignored or doctors don't know, and if they sometimes, sometimes they, they, they do the best they can, but that's all they have, and so they have to give another drug to manage the symptoms from the other drug. We still believe in treating poison to make people well. This is the, still the same fact. We still believe in that today. As a, as a matter of fact, the, the, the drugs, that, there, was a, there was a study published. It was called Restoring 320. It was, the study is called Restoring 329. It was, a, it, was a, it was a study published, and the study 329 was a study where they were testing Paxil on children. And they were testing it on children because they were saying, well, we want to find a drug, which is poison. It is poison to treat children of anxiety. And so they, they did the study and they sent the studies to the regulators and the regulators eventually approved the use of Paxil. Well, through a Freedom of Information Act request, they got this study that the drug companies did and it was called Study 329. And the, and the investigators went back and they looked at the raw data. And it turned out the raw data didn't say what the drug company said. It didn't say it at all. As a matter of fact, it showed that children who were on Paxil were more likely to commit suicide. And when the, when the drug companies went to the regulators, they had the same study, but the study said that there was no increase in suicide or suicidal ideation among the group that was taking the drug. They were still giving poison to treat children for something that you can't even find in a blood test, an MRI, or anything like that. Same thing. In the ancient Greek world, there was always a fear of the unknown, and they had these strange diagnoses, and sometimes they would tell you a noble lie, like trust in the gods, and you'll get better. Take this or that. But we still do the same thing today. Well, look at what has happened with this, with this whole thing. Master, master not good. Master are good. Two masks are better than one mask. We don't need masks. Well, now we need masks. Well, what is it? And when you ask the guy who was telling everyone, he says, well, I, I said that no one should take masks because I was afraid we were going to run out of masks. And then when you read his emails, he says, yeah, I don't think masks work. And then when you talk to experts, they say, well, only one type of mask works, but it doesn't matter. It's called the noble lie. The same thing that they would do in Greek medicine where they would show you things that the idols were doing. And they said, well, the reason why we want people to believe in the idols and the statues is because it will keep society going. We don't want to overthrow this. I mean, look at all the money that's brought into the temple of Diana. Look at all the money that's brought in the, the temple of Asclepius. Look at all this. We don't want this to go away. And so we're willing to tell lies. It's the same thing. What about, what about sin? Do we minimize sin today in medicine? You better believe we do. You better believe we do. In psychology today, you can look up the articles. You will find them. 
it, they talk about committing adultery. And in the middle of the article, the psychologist says, if a man is fixated on trying to be with someone or a woman is fixated and trying to be with a man and, and it's just causing them anxiety and causing them to be upset and causing them all these problems, it is better to have the affair for mental health reasons. That's what they said. There's no sin anymore. It even, it even goes on to say that lying sometimes can be good. I, I remember when I was, I was working at a runaway shelter, right? And even if you believe in taking the cocktails of psychotropic drugs and they work, right? Even if you believe in that, you will agree with me they don't quite work like this. I was in a shelter and this kid, he was cussing and thrashing around. And, and they were saying, you need to stop it. You need to knock it off. And he goes, I can't help myself. And he's dropping the F-bomb. I can't help myself. I haven't had my meds yet. It doesn't work like that. But we have been so conditioned that you can't control yourself, that you need poison. And let me be very clear, the drugs that they give for that are poison. They come with a whole list of side effects. They have a black box warning label on it saying, warning, if you take this, you may be more likely to blow your own head off. It doesn't say that, but it says you may be more likely to commit suicide. Still the same thing. You notice this, we haven't changed. We've adopted the Greek form of medicine. This is not what God would have us do. This is not what we would do, but this is what we do. There is no more sin in medicine. What else have we done? What else have we done? This is how far we've gone. In the Greek society, sexuality was no big deal. If a man wanted to be with a man, if a woman wanted to be with a woman, the, the, the word hermaphrodite comes from a Greek goddess who had both sexes. That's what it was, and so they didn't care. They didn't care what you identified. There wasn't, wasn't a big deal. You didn't, they didn't have a parade. They didn't do any of that. They didn't care. You did whatever you wanted, whatever you felt. If you felt like a man, you could man. If you felt like a boy, a boy, a girl, a girl, a woman, a woman, a, a donkey, it didn't matter. They didn't care. They didn't. But what about today? Have we distorted the sexes? Have we distorted when God has said, in the beginning, he created the male and female? Absolutely. Now, we have physicians who work for the government who literally say that hormone blockers for children are normal and should be given. There was a, there was a father who was arrested in Canada because he wouldn't call his daughter a boy's name, which she was not named even though she was born a girl. Who's behind this? Medicine is. The same thing. Why do we do this? Because we have adopted a form of medicine that leaves everything of God behind. And if you don't think that isn't idolatry, sorcery, you're, you've lost your mind. Think about like this. In the, in the, so I was raised Catholic. I was raised Catholic. And um, the, the, I was baptized, I was confirmed, I had my first communion, I, I, I was all through it, I was uh, into it, and I, I had no problems with it until I started reading the Bible and I realized everything that I believed did not line up with what the Bible said, and so I left it behind. But in Catholicism, infant baptism is, is huge. The, the concept is, is that every, every person born has original sin, and, and if you die with original sin on you, 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 well, I guess it's maybe a little bit different now. Maybe you go to limbo or you go to hell. Back in the day before there was limbo, there was hell. So it used to be hell. And that was terrible. You didn't want that. And so what they would do in medieval times is that they, they made it a law that every infant had to be baptized in the church by a priest. Every infant. And as the Protestant Reformation came about, guess what happened? People said, well, 
why would we baptize an infant when we see throughout the Bible Jesus and his disciples are never baptizing infants? John the Baptist never baptized one infant. No woman, we don't find a woman going to John, please baptize my baby. That never happens. And so people were reading that and they said, well, we're, we, we, we're not gonna do that anymore. And so what did they say? Well, if you don't baptize your infant in medieval society, you can't go to school. You can't, you're not considered a person. You're, you're not, your, your name is not put on the register and the register was the church so they knew they could keep track of people. You couldn't participate meaningfully anywhere in society. You couldn't get married. You couldn't be buried in the church cemetery. You had to be buried somewhere else which meant you were automatically going to hell. And they felt so strongly about it that they were willing to kill the parents so they could baptize the infant to save them. They were willing to take away all of their rights because they believed so strongly that they had to save this kid through this sacrament. They had to save the helpless baby from this terrible original sin. This was going to make things better, which we know that this is an affront to God because baptism is about repentance. Baptism is an outward showing that we have repented from the life that we live and we want to walk with Christ, right? It is a complete affront. But is this not true today? Do we not believe that even if you're obese, hypertensive, pre-diabetic, but you get a certain procedure, suddenly you're healthy? I mean, think about it. You can live your life and you can eat garbage and you can drive through the fast through drive through three, four times a day and eat that all day long. And if you get this procedure, you may even be able to get a free donut from Krispy Kreme. You get broiled crawfish. You can get a shot. You can get a beer. You can get all this stuff. But as long as you have that procedure, you're healthy. Is it not similar to the infant baptism where, well, if you don't get this, society's gonna fall apart. If you don't get rid of this original sin, it's dangerous for the child. It's dangerous for everyone else because we don't want people running around with original sin on them. Are we not in the same position? And what about the sacrifice for the greater good, as I pointed out with the word pharmakoi? Well, the word pharmakoi, the whole idea was is that you had a group of people who were the undesirable, the unwelcome, the criminals, the, the sick, and if you could get rid of them, you could make society purified. You could do that. Well, what about today? Just be, if a procedure carries side effects, which we know about, and the FDA has talked about, and we, and we can see it, it's okay because it, it's only so small. For the greater good of society, we can sacrifice a small group of people because we'll be better off, we'll be purified, we'll be better than what we were before. It's the same thing. The few should die for the many. And what about, and this, this I actually really agree with the Hippocratic Oath. The Hippocratic Oath was against abortion. They recognized even then, God must have been shining light on them even then. They recognized abortion just wasn't something you should ever do. That's why he says, you don't give any woman a, a preparation in order for her to have an abortion. They just said, hey, this is just wrong. We shouldn't do this. But what about today? What about today? Because the reason why the Hippocratic Oath was written on that point is because that's what they were practicing. They were practicing abortion. They were practicing that. And again, they, the, the, the Greeks were not Christian conservatives, <laughs> they were not, they were not with, the, with the religious right. There was no religious right. They just recognized that this is wrong, that doing this to a child and, and doing this to a mother was wrong. Taking advantage of a woman who's, who's distraught and doesn't want to have a kid is wrong. Doing this so a woman doesn't have to show the shame of what she's done is wrong. It's wrong. That's how they felt back then. But how about us today? 
Do we not look at his abortion as a, as a right, that we should do it? It's interesting that Ben Carson was going to go to Emory Medical School and he was going to speak at their graduation. Here's the guy who was the number one surgeon for, for uh, pediatrics in the world. Neuro, neuro, pediatric neurosurgeon, number one in the world, in the world. And the students at Emory decided that because he had said some unloving things about abortion, that he should have no right to speak there. How different are we in our form of medicine than the world? And the answer is not very different. We have abortions. We do believe in sacrificing the few for the many. We do believe in medical sacraments. We have removed sin from the treatment of disease. We have adopted this idea of poisoning someone to make them better. And we have taken God far from the method of healing that we were told, where we tell noble lies and we deal with the unknown. When we were given the health message, it wasn't so that we could be just like the world. It was so that we could reform medicine and bring it in harmony with the ideas of God. Are there good things that we do? Absolutely. There's life-saving surgeries that are done every day. I saw a video of a, of a young girl who had her cheek ripped off by a dog, and a plastic surgeon restored her face as she looked almost as if it never happened. Amen to that. Amen to some of the things that we can do. But when we look at it, our job isn't to be conformed to the system, but to transform it just like the gospel is to do for us. This is what we're supposed to do. We have a distinctive, powerful message that points to a sin-redeeming Savior and that if we put our trust in him, he said he can keep us free from disease. And it's so hard for us to believe. It's so hard. Believe me, I know. I've been there. To tell me that, that following Jesus will keep you free from disease if you obey him and do all this stuff, it's hard because, let's face it, we all get sick, Right? but that doesn't make his word untrue. That doesn't make what he said untrue. That doesn't make the things that we were taught and how to take care of ourselves untrue. It just means we have to do a better job. We have to do a better job and we have to get back to what God has done for us. As the Bible says very clearly, do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed the world by the renewing of your mind. I pray that as we go through this crisis of monumental proportions where doctors who are speaking out against certain procedures saying, hey, look, I agree with all the procedures in the past, but this has been rolled out too fast. This, there's too much corruption behind it. The data's not adding up to it, and they get censored. They get censored. Doctors aren't allowed to speak about it. They can lose their jobs. They can, they can lose it. And these are people who generally would be experts in the field and they're being attacked and nurses are being attacked and other people who want to just stand up and point out that something's wrong with this, this is a problem. Then when they want to roll out vaccine passports say, you can't go here, you can't go there. This is a trial that is being brought on us and the question is this, will we stand for the distinctive message we've been given or will we conform to the world? That's the choice we have. And so the only answer we have to make this decision is look at what the Bible says and says, does this measure up? And the light we've been given measured up to the practice. And if it doesn't measure it up, then I say go with conscience because that is your only place of safety. Let us bow our heads. Gracious and heavenly Father, I thank you for your holy scriptures. And in them is everlasting life. And why? Because they point to you. 
I thank you so much for the contrast that you give us from your methods and the worldly methods. This is what there is, Lord, and you're calling us to follow you. Yes, we know that the wisdom of God is considered foolish to men, but only foolish to those who perish, and we wanna rescue those who are perishing and show them there is a better way. Lord, help us to adopt these things in our lives that we may not only be apostles of it, but examples as well. Lord, the world is dying for the truth that we have sat on too long. Help us to restore it to its right place, to lead people to the three angels' message and to salvation. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Yep, absolutely. I'll stay right here. Anybody have a question? Don't worry if if you think it's a hardball, that's fine. I'm Hmm. okay with that. Or any online too, we might, if if one comes in, I can read that. One of the things that we, um, you know, I didn't get to, I didn't get to present today was we were talking, you know, I was talking about in potluck the history of our church and the issue of vaccination. And of course, this is this issue has been brought out to prominence based on the uh, COVID nineteen vaccine and every or the COVID nineteen vaccines. And everyone likes to bring up there. There's a letter written by D. E. Robinson, and they like to say, "Well, this shows that Ellen White was vaccinated, and she encouraged others to do so." The problem with this story is that there's two other letters that indicate that this isn't the case. The first letter was written by D. E. Robinson in 1915, and in this letter, he asked Ellen White directly why she's still alive. And so you have to remember, he worked at Elmshaven, and he lived there, and she lived there too. So he saw her on many occasions, and he could walk up over to her and say, hey, mother, because that's what they called her back then, mother, what do you think of vaccines? And if Ellen White was on board and saying, our health message is pro-vaccine, she could have said to him, hey, D.E., remember that time? There was an outbreak of smallpox and I got vaccinated and told everyone to do so. I mean, you were there, right? Remember? He doesn't mention it. He never mentions that story at all. If she was alive, and she was, and he asked her, why doesn't that story come up then? In that 1915 letter, he goes through a story about his uncle who died from smallpox, wished he had take the vac- taken the vaccine. He goes through a story of missionaries in Africa who didn't get sick after taking the vaccine when there was an outbreak of smallpox. And he sort of believes that smallpox uh, could be defeated by the vaccine. But then he carefully ends his letter in 1915. While she's still alive, he says, but this is my opinion for which Sister White is in no way responsible. Now think about that. Why didn't you hear that? Why didn't you hear that? In the Review and Herald in December 18th, 2020, they published an article saying that Ellen White supported the vaccines. But when Dee Robinson had, when it counted, and she was alive, he made sure to distinguish his opinion from hers, and he said that he could get nothing definite from her. In 1924, a letter's written about, uh, to the Ellen White estate about vaccination, and in 1924, uh, W.C. White, Ellen White's son, writes, and he says, he says uh, mother regarded it as a perplexing question. Perplexing question. Now, let me ask you this. If, if I believe that Toyotas are the best car, right? 
And someone asks me, what do you think the best car is? And I go, I don't know, that's a perplexing question. Do I really believe that Toyotas are the best car? I wouldn't say that. I'd say, oh, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the Supras, you know, it's got this, it's got that. It's one of the best cars. That's what I would say if I believed that Toyotas were the best. If Ellen White was for vaccines, which is what the story is, because the story shouldn't be that she was anti-vaccine. The story is, the prevailing narrative is that she was for vaccines. If she was for vaccines, why does her son say, she regarded it as a perplexing question. Why does Dee Robinson say when she's alive in 1915 that he could get nothing definite if she really believed in it? If she thought, yes, this is in harmony with our health message. The Lord has shown me. He goes on to say that she had been given no definite light. And this is a pause for both those who are pro-vaccine and anti-vaccine in the church. If Ellen White was not given definite light, then we have room for both of us to exist and make up our minds about this procedure. But in no way... Should we force anyone to take this procedure? No way should we say, this is the message, because she was not even given definite light on it. W.C. White goes on to say, he says that when I was a child, she said I was perfectly healthy. And then I took the shot, and I was made very sick. And she thought that it was bad. It was not good, right? And then he goes on to say that when there was an outbreak of smallpox in the vicinity, that the physicians came to her and told her that the methods of vaccination had improved. Now, let me ask you this. Why do they have to tell Ellen White that the methods of vaccines had improved if she was already on board with vaccines? Why do they have to convince her, hey, things are better, it's not so dangerous, it's way better, it's way better. They don't have to convince her if she was already in her, their camp, but she wasn't. And so W.C. White says that in light that the methods had improved, and in light that there was an outbreak of smallpox in the vicinity, I and my associates got vaccinated. He never says his mother did it. In 1931, uh, Elder Robinson conflates this story and includes Ellen White as someone who got vaccinated and told everyone to do so when there's zero evidence for that. Zero evidence. And here's the other thing that starts to, you start to realize is that when she was also alive, in our publications early on in the Health Reformer and Good Health, early on, they constantly published articles from anti-vaccinationists. Anti-vaccinationists in Great Britain were not those who just hated vaccines. They wanted a law that allowed for conscientious objection to vaccines, which was eventually passed in Great Britain in 1899. And so that while they were fighting for that, we would publish some of their writings in our own papers, and you could see it. You can see them saying, talking about the criminality of forcing people to let their children be poisoned and all this. It's amazing. This was published in our publications. Not one letter from Ellen White ever condemns any of it. J.N. Loughborough, so uh, one of our professors from Andrews, he's a professor emeritus, um, Dr. Brian Strayer, he published a biography about J.N. Loughborough, and he, he, uh, he he told me about this, and, and uh, another guy, Pro-Life Andrew, pointed this out as well. They showed me this document, which I unfortunately didn't include in the book with my co-author, but there's a document. It was published in an anti-vaccination publication, and Jay and Loughborough talks about how he, went to, he was in Great Britain, and he was coming back on a boat, or he was, I think he was going back to Great Britain from Canada, and he was on a boat, and he talks about how they were forcing all the steerage passengers. Steerage passengers were the poor people, and he talks about how they were doing it, not even cleaning the needle, and they were poking everyone. And one guy's arm went numb, 
And J.M. Loughborough says, I turned from the indiscriminate diseasing what they were doing in horror to share more of your materials. Now, let me ask you this. J.M. Loughborough was one of our earliest, he was one of our first evangelists. And if he was traveling to Great Britain, he was not only, he was carrying messages about the three angels' message. I mean, he's carrying tracts about the three angels' message, right? And about the Sabbath. But he felt that the fight for a conscientious objection to vaccination was in harmony with everything that we had been shown in 1883 that he also carried anti-vaccination material. Not one rebuke, not one letter saying, how dare you do that? That's not our position. You're, you're giving a divided, uh, a divided uh, platform to the world. You're showing us that we're, we're not united on this issue and, and we need to be for vaccines. She could have said that to him. She just said, hey, Jay, Jay and Loughborough, you know, come on. We're, that's not our fight. It's not religious freedom. Those people don't need to worry about it. She could have said that. She doesn't say it. Instead, he hands out those materials. John Harvey Kellogg. John Harvey Kellogg is probably one of the most interesting characters in the history of medicine and Adventism. You have the very good, the not so good, and then the very bad. In the beginning, John Harvey Kellogg believed that vaccination in a theory could work, that if you could get someone the disease, they could get better and they wouldn't get it. But he said in the very beginning, he said, but I believe that living hygienically, that means living according to the health message, that you wouldn't even need to do it. And he talks about how they were in New York and they were living hygienically. That means eating a vegetarian diet, using hydrotherapy, cleanliness, all this other stuff. He said they lived that way. And even though they were exposed many times to smallpox, they didn't get it one time. Not one time. He would go on to say that he felt that while vaccinations could provide some mode of protection, he felt that hygienic living was better, that a vegetarian diet was better. Eventually, he thought about building his own vaccine, and you can find this in the, in the Good Health. He talks about it. He teams up with the doctor, and they start building his own vaccine. And the reason why he wants to make his own vaccine as he argues that all the other vaccines are causing blood poisoning, and he talks about the numerous deaths from people taking these vaccines. Within about a year or so, he abandons that whole procedure. And it's never written about again. You will not find it in any of the procedures listed in the Battle Creek Sanitarium. There's a reason. Because he couldn't get it right. Couldn't get it right. In 1899, he goes before the General Conference. And he talks about our health message. And one of the things he says is this. He goes, the human way of fighting disease. And he, he talks about two examples. He talks about a woman who had conditioned her body. She could get bit by a snake many times. And it wouldn't kill her, wouldn't do anything to her. And he said, and she goes, look, if you let a, a, any other animal get bit by the same snake, it's going to die. And the snake venom isn't harming me. And Kellogg says, yes, it is. And he goes, it's like a boy who smokes tobacco. He uses tobacco. It looks like it's not affecting him, but all the while it is. And he says, this is like the vaccine. He says, the more vaccines you take, it lessens your vitality and weakens you because you're taking a low level of poison each time. He goes on to say, and he uses the word, he says that those who have taken the smallpox, he means the vaccine, he goes, are more likely to suffer from other diseases. This is what he says. And he goes this, he goes, but this is the human way of fighting disease, fighting fire with fire. And he says, but God has shown us a better way that we should not need vaccines if we're willing to obey his methods. And he said this in 1899 in front of the general conference. Daniel H. Kress Daniel H. Kress, who was a close associate with Ellen White, living in Australia, is a medical doctor, and he graduated from the University of Michigan. 
Trust me, he's, he learned about vaccines. He learned how great they were, how they saved everyone from smallpox. That's what he was told. And uh, I think, I'm trying to remember the publication. It's in, it's in the book. I, I, so I, I won't even be able to, I, I don't remember the, the name of the publication, but he writes in, oh, it's Australasian, Australasian Good Health. That's what it was. He writes in Australasian Good Health. He says that he uses Prussia, and he says Prussia had some of the strictest mandates on vaccines. You, had to, you, had, you were forced to get vaccinated when you were young. You'd be forced to get vaccinated when you, when you were uh, entering school, and then sometimes you had to be forced to be vaccinated as an adult, particularly when you're entering the military service. And he said, did this get, did, did Prussia, did this get rid of Prussia's outbreak of smallpox? And he said, no. He said, not until Prussia, and I believe after 1872, began to practice strict hygiene, strict quarantine, and clean up the cities, clean up, clean up all the filthy areas, did smallpox go away. And Kress says, hygiene, not vaccination, is what saved Prussia. In 1904, because some people like to point out that the anti-vaccination sentiment in Adventism was E.J. Wagner only, and I'm not sure why, but in 1904, Daniel H. Kress says, he was asked about vaccination. He goes, look, I don't want to talk about it. It's very controversial, but he goes, I believe that it is not as effective as living the way that God has told us to live. That's what he believed. He firmly believed that. These weren't people who were bitter. They weren't watching uh, reality TV because it didn't exist. They weren't following movie stars. They didn't care about them. They weren't reading a mom's blog and all this. These were, these were classically trained physicians who had a problem with it and felt that the health message was greater than that. And so I bring all this up to point out that within the Seventh-day Adventist church, there's always been an opinion that vaccines aren't as great as we've been told and that the health message is better. And there's always been people who believed that vaccinations worked. However, one of the areas that they both agreed on is they didn't believe that anyone should be forced to take it. And they were actually against compulsory measures. M.C. Wilcox, in Signs of the Times, writes about a story of a group of physicians and people meeting together to have an anti-vaccination meeting. And he says they had every right to do it. And a doctor came in with the police and broke up the meeting and had one of the men arrested. The man was eventually let free. And M.C. Wilcox says, we believe in proper vaccination. So he believes in it. He goes, we believe in proper vaccination, but this, this type of thing where they want to force people to take a vaccine, where they want to stop people from meeting and sharing information, this type of legislation is similar to paternal religious legislation clamored for by all parliaments. What was he talking about? Sunday laws. He felt that when people are going to force medical procedures on the unwilling, that same spirit behind that legislation is the same spirit behind forcing people to worship something that just isn't true. That's what he felt. So no matter where you stand on the subject, you can see that is when you look at our history that it wasn't the way that it is now. And you have to ask yourself, is the way that it is now due to faithfulness to the light and message we've been given or is it something else, compromise? And in order to understand that, you got to get back to the sources and read it. Yes, sorry, I, I kept talking, my bad. Well, that was excellent. Um, thank you for the wonderful parallels in Scripture to the counterfeit and, and the real deal. Um, Praise the Lord. 
while we're on the, the specific topic, um, we know that the antediluvians had very advanced science far beyond probably what we can yes. even think of today. Uh, and we know that they were genetically modifying things and, and in Spiritual Gifts Volume 3, I believe, she says that if there was one base sin over another that caused God to destroy the world, it was the amalgamation of man and beast. Yeah. With that said, could you perhaps for the audience uh, draw a distinction between the vaccines of the past and yeah. the, the one now in terms of how the technology or the science is not the same? Yeah. No, it, it, it clearly isn't. So the, the theory, the, the vaccination, so you have to understand, historically speaking, there was inoculation. Everything I said in the Old Testament, New Testament, where you would take someone who had the disease, whether you took the pus from that person or you took, you, you took a shirt that they wore or, or anything and you, you gave that to someone as well, that's actually called the practice of inoculation. There's a difference. Inoculation means you take the human disease from another human and give it to someone who isn't sick at that moment and they fight it and they get better. And that used to be the way of fighting it. And again, as I pointed out, nowhere in the Old Testament or New Testament could that ever be countenanced. There's no way. You couldn't see Moses being like, yeah, go ahead and wear that shirt with, with uh, effluvia from pus and that will prevent disease. That wasn't anything Moses could say. Neither did Christ say, hey guys, when you go into a town, not only heal the sick and, and, and pray over people, but bring a shirt that has pus from smallpox and get all the children to wear it so they'll get sick and then they won't get sick. That, that, just, that, that, that never would have happened, right? Just, just so you understand. But that was inoculation. Vaccination is the idea that you take a human disease and you give it to an animal and then you take the disease attenuated an animal and give it to a human being. Hillary Koprowski, in inventing or being a co-inventor of the oral polio vaccine, so you, you can look this up, this is hilarious. Um, it's published in the New York Times. It was, it, was, uh, it was celebrating his life after he died. So you can look it up, Hillary Koprowski, he, he, he was a pioneer in the, the development of the polio vaccine. And the writer, not even tongue in cheek, just writes this, says that Hillary Koprowski, when he was developing the smallpox oral vaccine, that he would take uh, mice brains and he would try to cultivate the virus in these mice brains and then he, this is, and this is, this is actually from the New York Times, he would put these things in a blender, put the mice brains in a blender, and then he tasted it. And he said it tasted like fish oil. So he would cultivate it, and he said, well, it did nothing to him. So this may be the way to help people fight off polio by using mice brains where polio was cultivated and then giving it to human beings. And they felt like the more mice they used, it would dilute the virus enough that it would be attenuated so when you took it, you wouldn't get sick. That's literally, now you think about that. Just think about that for a moment. That would be something that a witch might have done in the medieval times. Oh, we take these mice brains and you, you put them in a, in a pot and you drink the broth and you, that's something they would have done. But, but the idea was if we cultivate the virus in a disease and we attenuate it and then we give that to a human being, the, body, the human body will recognize it and produce antibodies and be able to fight the disease. That is how vaccination generally worked. And you can even, and, and, and as vaccines became more advanced, they, they didn't take the whole virus, they would take part of the virus, they would take certain antigens and, and do that, but they were still using the virus. That was the basis of it. They would use part of the virus. This new vaccine is, is, is not taking any of that. They're using a modified strand of messenger RNA which in all the vaccines, they have to cultivate in a certain aborted fetal cells. 
Even if the, even if the um, Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech don't have any aborted fetal cells in it, they had to cultivate it using it. The Johnson Johnson and AstraZeneca do have aborted fetal cell tissues in it. Even the Catholic Bishops' Conference pointed that out, and that's why they encouraged their members to use the other vaccines because they still believe in vaccines. And they even told its members, hey, look, if all you have is the AstraZeneca and um, Johnson Johnson, that's okay because that was a sin a long time ago. So they, they were not even against it. They're not even, the Catholic bishops are for, in favor, just like the Pope is of the vaccine. But the difference is, is that this messenger RNA strand, which is cultivated using all sorts of modification, this messenger RNA strand is now put into a lipid nanoparticle. And what you have to understand, the reason why they use a lipid nanoparticle, because on every single cell in your body, you have defense mechanisms that stop messenger RNA from getting in it, that stop it. Your, your body's designed not to let messenger RNA get into your cells and take them over and produce things that your body was never designed to produce. So let me give you a case in point. So there was an article published in 2016, and I think it's like, oh gosh, I'm probably not going to remember, but it's, I think it's, it has something to do with uh, biodistribution. But anyways, the study, they, they wanted to see, so this was one of the first studies they did looking at a lipid nanoparticle and messenger RNA. And I just want you to understand this. The, the way they look at messenger RNA is that they understand that it is simply a set of instructions that can force your cells to produce things they would never produce. And this is a case in point. So they were testing the lipid nanoparticles in the messenger RNA strand, and they wanted to see where it would go in the human, or not in the human body. Well, yeah, where it would go in the human body, so they were testing it on rats. This is an article, again, published in 2016. And so they would take the rat, and they would take this messenger RNA strand with a lipid nanoparticle, and they would shoot it into the, to the hind leg of the rat. Within less, within less than a few hours, they would find a signal in the thorax, that means in the liver, the lungs, the heart, the kidneys, of the rat. Now we were told when the vaccine came out that if you inject it intramuscularly, as they did with the rat, that it stayed just in the muscle, but that's not true. They knew this since 2016. Now how did they know? How did they know that the lipid nanoparticle and the messenger RNA spread? Well, the messenger RNA strand that they used, uh, it was designed to produce luciferase. Now, now we're not talking about Lucifer, the son of uh, the, the, the god of this world, right? We're talking about luciferase. Luciferase is a um, is an enzyme that you make that helps you produce bioluminescence. It's in every bioluminescent creature. So what they were able to do is they were able to inject... Now, now let me ask you this. How many, raise a show of hands, besides watching as a kid Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, how many times have you seen a rat glow in the dark? Right. No one, right? No one. I haven't either. I have never seen a rat glow in the dark, at least in real life. But when they would inject these rats with luciferase, their body would produce bioluminescent proteins. And this way, when they used a specialized camera, they could see these proteins light up in the body, and that's how they knew where it went. Now think about it. Did God design rats to produce luciferase? The answer is no. That means that this thing that they're using, this mechanism of lipid nanoparticle and messenger on RNA strand, is to get your body to produce something it would never produce. Never, ever produce. You are not designed to produce spike proteins. You're not. And so they, they, they also talk about how they're going to use the same delivery system to maybe get your body to produce proteins that could be synthesized into drugs, to produce other proteins that, that, that will help repair tissues. It, this, you have to understand this lipid nanoparticle messenger RNA technology is designed to get you to become the factory to produce whatever they want you to produce something that your body's not designed to do. 
Now, I know there's a debate. Well, it can change your DNA. Listen, I'm gonna stick to exactly what I can prove. What I can prove is simply this. This technology is not like the old technology where you used a section of the virus or the whole virus attenuated in animals to develop antibodies. This technology is used to hijack the mechanisms of your cell to produce proteins you would never, ever, ever produce. And what we're seeing, and this is why when people say, hey, this is new, they're right, this is new. We haven't done this. They originally did studies where they wanted to see, like with people with congestive heart failure, what happens is, is that when your cardiomyocytes die, they're replaced by fibrosis and they don't heal. For whatever reason, they don't regenerate. So what they wanted to do is inject people with these, uh, with these um, messenger RNA strands with lipid nanoparticles into the heart, hoping that they would produce uh, living cardiomyocytes to replace those, those fibrotic proteins and strengthen the heart. Sounds good. It just never worked. It never worked. This is new. This is novel. This is what they're doing. So yes, when you're talking about this amalgamation, and keep in mind, when they make these things, it's all genetically modified. Whether you use human aborted fetal cells, whether you use animals, whatever you use, you're creating a messenger RNA strand that has no business being in your body. Your body would fight it off. If you, if you swallowed it, your body would try to kill it immediately because it has no business being there. And so yes, they are manipulating your cells to do something they would never do. Rats don't glow in the dark, and human beings do not produce spike proteins on their own, period. Any others? All right. Thank you so much. Oh, go ahead, sir. Well, I understand the concept of your introducing something into your body that your body doesn't produce itself. Right. But... Uh, I mean, your body doesn't produce viruses either. So no. No. what is the significant difference then if you're, you're trying to kill something that your body doesn't produce, whether it's, uh, you know, spike proteins or, uh, or, or the coronavirus? Right, right. Well, right. So if, if, I, if, if I go out and I catch the coronavirus, right, I catch the coronavirus, there's, there's a number of things that happen. One, it goes to the mu mucosal membranes, a number of parts of the immune system begin to attenuate it before it gets to where it is. If my immune system's healthy, it's going to en encompass it. There's a number of things that the body's going to do to fight it. So it's a completely different pathway before that. Whereas even though it takes over certain cells, it's not taking over, it's not like, for instance, when I inject the, the vaccine into the arm, it's gonna take over the cells in the muscle. Well, the, the coronavirus wouldn't do that. It would go for the lungs, it may go for other tissues, but it's not going for that. It's going for muscles. The other thing is that when you inject the lipid nanoparticle, they found that it actually goes into the vascular endothelium. And that's the, the lining of your blood vessels, particularly the arteries, and it will produce spike proteins on those walls. And when it produces spike proteins on those walls, that's where you can get clots, that's where you can get damage, that's where you can get strokes. Yes, you can actually get strokes from the actual coronavirus, but it's not going to be the same way. On top of that, the other interesting thing about it is that I was reading an article, it was about uh, a MERS. And so MERS is Middle Eastern Respiratory Virus, which was way more severe than the current coronavirus. And one of the things they were talking about was the importance of not only your immune system uh, is able to identify the spike protein, but it's also able to identify the outer protein of the cell of the virus and able to identify, there's one other protein, I forget, but there's at least three proteins that your immune system is able to identify. 
And because it's able to identify that, you produce a robust immunity, and you're able to now have long-lasting immunity. And they noticed this with MERS, that those who were able to survive MERS had long-lasting immunity. When you have hijacked your cells to produce one protein, one protein, you're not getting the whole immune system involved, and so therefore, even if you develop some form of immunity, it is nowhere near as robust as the original immunity you would have, you would have developed had you taken it naturally and fought it. So you are, you're still hijacking the immune system to do something it would never do while not getting the full effect. And this is why we're seeing within six months of the vaccine, you need another vaccine, another vaccine, and, and they're thinking now four doses. Oh, by the way, one other thing, There's a, there was a study published a few months ago, it's called Uber Antibodies. It was published in the Journal of Medical, American Medical Association, pro-vaccine journal, okay? It's called Uber Antibodies, and one of the things they point out is this. They said, we need to develop better drugs and better vaccines that can actually get the immune system to do what it does when it fights a natural virus, because the stuff that we're producing isn't good enough. So think about it. Just, just let that sit in your head for a moment. This was written as an article saying we need to get more drugs and we need to be better therapeutics, because why? What they currently produce is not as good as the natural. Not as good. They recognize that. And they were talking about the antibodies that you produce have a, a degree of variability in it, naturally, that will adapt to different variants of the, vi of the virus. Variants of the virus, sorry. So yes, to, to make a long story short, when you hijack what God, the way God has established to do things, you don't get the best results and you cause more harm, in my opinion, than good. And one last thing, uh, when we're talking about natural, the Lord healed supernaturally. Yes. And I, I liked your example, but what about, was it, was it Peter or Paul, Paul that laid on the, or maybe it was the Lord, he laid on the... The young boy. The young boy. Yeah. What, yeah. was, what, was, what was the young boy's name who fell from the window? Eutychus, Eutychus thank you. Yeah, yeah, Eutychus, the sleepy one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so he lays on him. Yeah, Elijah did the same thing. Elijah laid on the son of um, the widow of Zarephath. He, he kind of does the same thing. And it seems like he's almost doing CPR, right? It's what it seems like. But apparently the Bible said that he was dead. And so I don't, I get that CPR is a real thing. And, and you know, I have to be trained in it. A number of people have to be trained in it. I think it's a good thing. I don't think, see anything wrong with it. But the idea was everyone knew he was dead. I mean, he fell from a height high enough, conceivably, that there was no way they thought he would live. And when the boy was dead of the widow of Zarephath, I mean, he had been dead for some time, and, and uh, Elijah was able to bring him back to life. But I do believe, listen, let me be very clear, when, when in the book of Ezekiel it talks about the Lord binding up your broken limbs and things like that, that means, and, and the language used there was the language symbolic of someone who knew what it was like to get limbs attached. He was using language that they would have understood. There were physicians and, and, and surgeons who could do that in those days. As a matter of fact, the word for surgeon, in, or, or sorry, not surgeon, for a physician in Hebrew is uh, rafa, and sometimes used rofe, and that word means mender, means binder. So they understood how to fix limbs. They understood how to do surgery. Uh, even, I think, I forget which king it was, he was shot with an arrow, and he tried to go to Jezreel, to get his wounds taken care of because he knew there was someone there who could do it. You think about it, if you're gonna engage in that type of warfare, you're gonna get stabbed, you're gonna get hit with a blunt object. Someone had to figure out how to fix things. So they still had a knowledge of it. And keep in mind this, Luke was a physician and Paul himself was benefited by Luke's treatments. 
Think about the irony. God had given Paul such a thorn in the flesh that he could take a, a handkerchief and wave it over someone and they would get well, but he himself could not get well. And so medicine was there for him. And even look at Timothy, right? He says, he says do not drink water only, but a little wine for thine, for, for thine infirmities or for the infirmities of thy stomach. The idea that grape juice, grape juice has the ability to heal, uh, it's pretty crazy. They, they, they did a study where people were eating. Um, so after you eat, what happens is, depending on the food, your blood can be filled with something called a lipopolysaccharide, which is, a, which is the outer layer of a bacteria. And it's one of the ways they can gauge inflammation post-prandial, post-meal. And so one of the things they, they noticed that, and they, they did this, they, they really did this, you can read the study, they had people eat an egg McMuffin, and then they would test their blood for lipopolysaccharide, and they'd find a huge spike in it. And when they had them eat the egg McMuffin and drink grape juice, there was less lipopolysaccharide because they believe that the grape juice had the ability to close the tight junctions and not allow the bacteria in the bloodstream. So there's a lot of things that grape juice can do medicinally for the body. And so he was telling Timothy to use this medicinally. And you have to ask yourself, why was Timothy under the impression that he should only drink water considering that he wanted to eschew the appearance of evil and always be sober? So there's always place for medicine. There's always place for natural means. There's always a place for, for the skill of a surgeon, the skill of a midwife, right? The Hebrews had midwives as well. I, I never take that away. I mean, I, I wouldn't have a job. There's always gonna be room for that. However, no matter whether we have midwives, we have chiropractors, we have physi uh, physicians and surgeons, we who believe in Christ should always be pointing to him as the ultimate source of healing, period. So that's the difference I see. Any others? We good? We're good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We record these messages each week at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Adairsville. And if you're ever in the area, we'd love to see you. Stop in and say hi and enjoy some good Southern food with us. We'll see you next week.